now it's time for Rod and Real Radio with your hosts, Hop Along John Cassidy, fresh and saltwater expert angler Stan Vanderberg, and all-around outdoors fishing and hunting enthusiast Wendy Toshihara. If you love the outdoors, enjoy salt or freshwater fishing, this is the show for you. We'll cover most all of the fishing tournaments and events with special reports while providing you with the information you need as to how and where to experience the best fishing opportunities in Southern California, Baja, Alaska, or just about anywhere the fish are biting. We have some fantastic guests and reports lined up for you this evening, so sit back, relax, and get ready for the fastest two hours in radio. It's all right here, right now, on Rod and Reel Radio, the best stop on your radio dial for all the information you need for fishing opportunities all over the United States. Now here's your host, Hop Along, John Cassidy. Well, you know, I think Stan and I can say that we probably grew up in the discipline of bass fishing and have been bass fishing for a little while. Wendy is an all-round species fisherman for sure. You know, and being bass fisherman here, especially out in Southern California, you kind of become snobbish and thinking, well, you know, there's no other type of fishing out there. When actually, when you travel around the United States, you're going to find there is a wealth of fishing out there. And whether it be guys fishing for walleye, if they're fishing for catfish, they're fishing for redfish. And there's also organizations that are supporting that. Well, I happen to run across an individual that has another discipline of fishing that we all need to know about because you can do it out here on the West Coast as easily as you can do it in Missouri or Louisiana, and that's crappie fishermen. But what sets this individual apart, he's a professional crappie fisherman, and he's fishing crappie fishing professional tours. So let's welcome him to Ron Real Radio. Find out what it's all about. Mr. Matthew Rogers. Matt, welcome to Ron Real Radio. Howdy, John. Uh, glad to be here. We are glad to have you, sir. And, and Matthew, is my assumption kind of right where... First of all, tell us where you come from and tell us how you developed your love of fishing. And was it crappie first? Was it bass? Uh, was it brim? What was it? I'll tell you what. It was about anything that I'd bite in my grandpa's pond when I was little. <laughs> um, I had a grandma that loved fishing, and uh, she, uh, you know, unfortunately passed away before I ever got to, got old enough to know her or anything. And uh, my uh, grandfather would take me down to his pond, and he, we fed the catfish. We stocked it all the time, and he really incorporated me into the, you know, the the whole works of it. Not just the catching fish. I mean, from when I was little, I just got to see everything from probably a di- little bit different angles than a lot of kids grow up. You know, getting taken to a pond once or twice, and and, uh, you know, maybe developing a little bit of a passion for it. But I had something, you know, dwelling in my heart since then for fishing. And my other grandfather, actually, it's his uh, 85th birthday to, today here, and we're over with my kids over here this afternoon playing around. And, and he used to always tell me whenever I was little, if there was a storm coming, a tornado was coming, I'd stand there in my boots and stay out fishing. He would take me out to a, a old rock quarry that had filled up with water and had, you know, about everything in it, um, you know, but primarily bass. But um, 
that's what I started doing, you know. I mean, whenever I got a little bit older, probably eight, nine, I, I was kind of intrigued by bass. And uh, later on, just so happened, I ran into a guy that guided. I was 10 years old, and his name was Richard Bowling. He was a guide on Truman Lake here in Missouri. And um, there was a turkey calling contest, and I told the guy, if I win this turkey calling contest, you got to take me fishing. And uh, I ended up winning it, and he held his word, and he took me fishing. And, you know, that that was a, a huge impact on on what I wanted to do when I got older. You know, of course, every kid wakes up and watches Bassmaster and dreams about it, but uh, somebody took that initiative and took that step to take me and um, – show me a little bit about it and uh you know i had never been on a boat at that point that i could remember in my life you know a big boat on a lake and and that experience is surreal in my mind to do this to to this day i I think about it a lot and uh you know that that kind of developed that passion for crappie fishing that um you know i was just a broke kid forever until i got a little bit of money in my pocket and uh you know started to going a little more and trying to figure them out and uh you know i started from square one though when it comes to the lake fishing you know i got them taken out that one time and and i I remember it right the guy took me three times and and the first time he took my brother and i and and this guy did it for a living and you know he didn't want any money or anything for it i think taking those steps you know that initiative um is something that I, i feel like you know as a professional fisherman as professional fishermen, as a group, a whole, you know, uh, we kind of owe it to to maybe pick out a kid that we think is is really interested in it and uh, take them out and give them that opportunity, you know. Because if I wouldn't have had that happen, uh, I who knows where I'd be. I'd probably be laying hardwood floor still somewhere with some knee aches. Well, tell me, Matt, you know, developing into a uh, professional and I, I don't know. It, are we calling it right to call you a professional fisherman? Because do you have another job on the side? Nope. Or I know you're following nope. the uh, the circuit and you're traveling hundreds, if not thousands, of miles in the pursuit of prize money and crappie tournaments. So that certainly sounds like a professional to me. Yeah, I don't have any other job. I guide a little bit, very, very little. Um, uh, I. I primarily pick out when I do a trip people that uh want to learn something you know I'm not I'm I don't usually just take out people that just want to you know go catch 30 crappie to eat I try to take out people that want to learn and I do several uh, a lot of electronics training mainly um but I primarily just fish the tournaments for a living um and I'm gonna tell you you know there's a lot of a lot of ramen noodles get ate you know I mean it ain't (laughs) all glory glorious and you know like i'm making a bunch of money but i get to do something every day that i i enjoy it's uh there's days of course when it's raining and cold uh and it's pretty hard to go you know but uh in the end it's it's so much better than going to a nine to five and you know there's a video of edwin evers and rick clun talking about uh rick fun taking his big step into it and you know what his family thought and it it's a lot more accepted now to be a professional fisherman it's not looked at as it's just a you know somebody's out there getting to go run around and do their hobby i mean it's a job you know and and it's it's more accepting in society as a job because we've got high school fishing and collegiate fishing which that's all bass and and um 
I would have probably, you know, if I had, if my dad would have been a bass fisherman and been a big lake fisherman, I probably would have had a little more grass with bass and, you know, probably would have had more equipment. That's the main thing that really detoured me from bass fishing was how much money it cost. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any money. So I, for a hundred dollars, you can get everything you need to go catch crappie. Well, you know, Stan, Stan, you know, we've seen a lot of pro anglers develop in our lifetime. When do you have too, as being with Iserline and Stan, did you, Know any other fishermen beside maybe Aaron Martins that didn't grow up on ramen noodles? I think Aaron grew up on alfalfa sprouts or <laughs> well, something like no. that. <laughs> you know, that was when we first started. You know, I had a pickup truck and a shell and, and a bass boat, and I would go sleep in the back of the truck, and I, you know, had a little coffee maker and a stove if I wanted to make something in the morning. You know, and you had an ice chest full of whatever you could do for lunch, and you cooked your own dinner when you got back in. But that was, you know, tournament fishing back then. I, I mean, I was, I loved fishing for crappie when we had the crappie season, you know, and I would go to either Pyramid, I mean, uh, Piru had big crappie in it, and so did Kachuma. And as a kid, you know, with our, you know, little 14-foot aluminum 10-horse Johnson, you'd go troll around with a marabou jig, and you'd catch crappie. You could, you know, you get in the right area, and you'd throw something small and, uh, a little crappie killers, they called them, you know, and you could catch a bunch of crappie, but it was only during the season that you had to find the right stuff, you know, to go fish. And then it was over. To, to become a crappie fisherman in a tournament series, I, I know one guy that fished the Western Bass tournaments, Nick Guy Skinner, and he is a crappie, his thing is a crappie guy on his website. Um, and he's in Vin, Vineyard, Texas, but he is a crappie fisherman, and he has a guide service there. But I can't imagine trying to figure out where to catch crappie if they're not up in the, in the crappie season. is just when they're up spawning and running around. The rest of the year, they just disappear. I don't know how you do that. I mean, you're, you're probably fishing out of a Lund or some style boat like that, I would imagine. Or are you fishing out of a bass boat? How do you, what do you do, and how do you find these things all year long? So I fish out of a, I've got a Phoenix. I've had several Phoenix boats. I've, I've had, you know, of course, I started in a little aluminum boat. Um, it, and it none of that really matters. It's, it's mainly the electronics nowadays. Um, you know, but there's one thing. There is a misconception with, with the crappie and seasonal stuff. There's some lakes that they are just horrible at certain times of the year. You know, if you've got a really clear water lake, it can be really tough in the summer at certain times. Um, and, I grew up on a lake that's shallow and muddy, and they, I mean, you can catch crappie in six foot of water almost all year long. Um, and, and and for sure, you know, there's fish that aren't any deeper than six foot down at any given time throughout a year on that, on, and that's Truman Lake. And then I got a lake that's uh, 30 minutes from the house, which is a little cleaner, but Stockton Lake, and uh, they'll go in the winter 60, 70 feet down in that lake. Um so I think it's, it, it can depend on the lake that you have. But for the most part, you know, the fish go up, they spawn in the spring, you know, going into out there in Cali. You guys are probably maybe hitting the spawn more in February than uh, we're hitting it. We're, yeah, we're just now hitting it. Right. You know, uh, Matthew, uh, 
We're speaking with uh, uh, Matthew Rogers, and he's a professional crappie fisherman out of the Midwest. And and Matthew, when you decided to make the big leap, I mean, uh, you know, family's looking at you. You're looking around saying, is there a viable tournament series going where I can make a living traveling great distances to go after crappie and still do the things I like and maybe crappie fish on the side and do some promotional work for crappie manufacturers. I mean, that had to be a magnum leap uh, for you to, to decide to do that. Yeah, it was. Um, basically, what how I got started into it, and that was, I was going to say, you know, there's a couple uh, people that played key roles in, in me becoming a professional fisherman, and that was a guy named Jared Fogno and the Richard Bowling. Um, whenever I turned, I think I was 17 years old, um, I got I finally got a boat, and I was scared to death to take it to Truman Lake. I mean, I didn't grow up on boats and stuff, and uh, I was scared to death. And he offered to let me fish with him in a, in a big fish challenge, you know, where they have a time slot and you go weigh a fish. And well, I ended up winning one of them one of the, t- the first session and you know i was like 900 bucks well 900 bucks when i was 17 years old was like you know it's like 10 grand now to me you know i mean that was a ton of money and I-, I knew i could fish on that i'd have gas money for a long time and i actually ended up having some issues with uh health wise i had i have lyme disease and so i was uh, in and out of the doctors and ended up having to kind of quit school for a little while to try to take care of my health and um so i just went fishing every day to be real honest with you for about you know a, a full summer and uh going every day from daylight to dark you know i just learned so much about those patterns that we were kind of starting to talk about a little bit you know these fish spawn they go out to the flats in the summer i learned how to find those fish and uh other parts of the year other than the spawn because i was a you know a bank fisherman at heart until I'd gotten that boat and I had to catch the crappie during the spawn. Um, but then I, uh, the Richard Bowling had, you know, he had taken me. So there was, there was a lot more development with my, you know, a passion. And I think that's another thing that is, um, kind of unnoticed what it takes. Like you have to really want it. Like it's not about the money by any means to go and do it. It's, and I, I'm not really the type of guy that I'm about to glory for it. I just love to fish, and I like to compete. I, you know, I'm fishing for the trophy. Like, I, I, I'm just now starting to do promoting because um, I really didn't care about that side of it. You know, I just wanted to win. But to do it as a job, you have to, you have to balance it, and you've got to go and do the promoting part to be able to get paid by sponsors and uh, to be able to make an actual living at it. You know, because as it says right now, I mean, all I do is – Spend the money that's in my bank account because I'm, you know, you, it's so hard to break even um, traveling and, and doing it. And especially with the fuel, you know, the fuel prices right now, it's probably harder for people to take that leap right now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure behind trying to do it the way I'm, you know, I'm doing it. And, and the payouts at one time for the crappie fishing were a guaranteed $27,000 Ranger, the little uh, uh, RT-188, I believe they're 20, yeah, 27000 is what they retail that. So you guaranteed that, you know, six times a year, and then the championship was a 18-foot uh, 
um, an 18 foot blast ranger. And, uh, you know, that was a really solid payout right now. We're fishing, uh, I'm fishing a trail called Trappy masters and, uh, it's a guaranteed $10,000. And, um, you know, I won the one at Grenada and, you know, the $10,000 when you've got a $40,000 truck and a $87,000 boat, you know, is, is really not a lot. So you've got to be willing to do it because you're passionate for it rather than to go try to get rich or anything like that. You know, your purpose behind it, I think, is uh, is more influential on, on how well you, you do and how you perform. Um, Matt, I think you see we- that. Go ahead. Matt, we got to take a break right now, and uh, I think uh, Stan and I will tell you a little bit about passion with some of the fishermen <laughs> that we've known in the past. I, I, Stan, we're going to take a break, but I don't believe any of the guys that we know that are on the top that don't have a fire in their gut for fishing all the time like uh, you don't see anywhere else. But we're going to get into that we'll after about that when we get back. To the yeah, break. we're talking uh, with Matt Rogers. He is a professional crappie fisherman out of the Midwest. I also want to talk about the uh, tournament that he had fished at Lake Granada because he had some great results on that. Fishing with a pretty special partner, too. So stay tuned. Stan Windy and Matt Rogers and I will be back after these messages. Hi, I'm Pat McDonald, and I've got some great news. The Hall family shows are back. The Bart Hall Show, February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds, is San Diego's biggest fishing show, its biggest boat show, its biggest outdoor recreation event in four years. Acres of fishing tackle, boats, fishing, and hunting travel and outdoor adventure. Come celebrate 75 years of Hall shows with a full day of family fun. The Bart Hall Show, February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. Every serious angler knows that a quality hook is an important part of their arsenal. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat-treated to make them light and extra strong, but not brittle. Gamakatsu ring hooks are made with a one-piece ring, no welds, no weak spots, a very smooth-moving ring. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing. Live bait hooks, both light and heavy-duty, to four extra strong. Circle hooks, tuna hooks, ring hooks, tuna doubles, and many more. Don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook. Get Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. Hi, Roland Martin here. I'd like to tell you a little about Gary Yamamoto and the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company. It all started with an idea, then a dream, and in 1983, the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company was formed. If you know Gary Yamamoto like I do, and I've known him since 1983, you know he has a passionate love for the sport of fishing. That love is only matched by his obsession to design and produce the highest quality soft plastic fishing lures on the market today. Every bait Gary makes is inspected by hand. Today, more than two and a half million packages of bait are shipped worldwide. On behalf of Gary and his staff, he wants to thank his customers for thinking so highly of his products and wishing you the great success of the sport of fishing. Whether you fish for fun or fish the tournament circuits like I do, you'll honor Gary for making Gary Yamamoto custom baits a key part of your fishing experience. Take it for me, Roland Martin. When I'm in need of a go-to bait, my first choice is a Gary Yamamoto custom bait. The perfect day is my family and I on the boat, out on the waterway. I love it. Nothing but sun, snacks, fishing, and of course, life jackets for everyone. 
Save the ones you love. Life jackets save lives. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Turner's Outdoorsman, California's number one fishing, hunting, and shooting sports retailer, now has 28 locations. Turner's is your one-stop shop for fishing tackle, hunting gear, and everything for shooting sports. Turner's offers a full selection and unmatched prices on the gear you need. Whether you're planning a fishing trip with the family or chasing giant tuna, Turner's highly skilled staff will make sure you have the gear for your next adventure. Visit turners.com to find a Turner store near you and be sure to join the Turner's Discount Club to get weekly ads and specials right to your inbox. Turner's Outdoorsman, your one-stop shop for all your fishing needs. Gotta love California in the summer. Just remember, COVID is still with us. So if you're going to the water, plan ahead. Follow local public health guidelines and make sure everyone wears a life jacket. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hi, I'm Pat McDonald here to tell you that the hall shows are back. Bart Hall shows February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds and March 29th through April 2nd at the Long Beach Convention Center. Share the passion of outdoor recreation as we celebrate 75 years of Hall Show's family fun. Stan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Reel Radio. Our special guest this hour is Matt Rogers and Matt Rogers is a professional crappie fisherman out of the Midwest. And just before we took a break, uh, you know, Wendy, Stan, and I, we were talking about the the professional anglers that we've known in our lifetimes, whether it be the Dean Rojas's, the Ish Monroe's, the Gary Kleins, you name it, each and every one of them, they have a particular pr- trait that they have a burning desire to go fishing, and whether they're 22 years old or now they're in their 50s or 60s. And Stan, I, I think the top echelon guys, they have that desire and it just doesn't leave them. You know, I mean, I know almost all of the guys that have fished in the West, you know, that are on the pro circuit or major league fishing or FLW. It doesn't make any difference from Gary Klein. And like you're saying, you know, the guys that are out there, Skeet Reese and, and Aaron was a very close friend and uh, but, you know, the guys that have been around for a long, Johnny Murray's no young guy, but, you know, he's back there in Kentucky now, he used to live out here, but there isn't one of them. And you mentioned, you know, uh, when you talk about the guys that started, you know, out here young and they're still fishing, they, it, it never leaves. I can't wait myself, and I'm an old guy, <laughs> I can't wait to get to the next tournament just to be involved with the and just see where you land, whether you win, lose, or draw. Hey, that's part of fishing. But to hear the fire that that's in in Matt's belly, I just smile because you never lose that if you're a competitive fisherman and you enjoy the tournament circuits and and being involved with the thing and seeing if you can win a buck here and there. Um, and then the representation of your sponsors becomes. You know, it's something you you kind of have to learn uh, over a period of time. It doesn't come right away. Um, and then you put the pressure on yourself a lot of the time when you're young and you're coming in, I got to win. That's not so much it. You just have to be consistent and represent the products well that you that you uh, are involved with in boats and line and whatever else. Wendy's got a line company. She knows exactly, you know, what these guys need 
to do just talk about the product and don't be an idiot out there yeah you know you know one of the things i like to tell people when they're looking for sponsors is make sure it's a, a product that you can represent that you believe in because it's your reputation on the line and when you find a company that wants to sponsor you and you guys are in agreement stick with them because yep. jumping around is is not good yeah nope. hey Hey, guys, we've got a professional crappie fisher on here, and I know there are people out there going, hey, we need some tips on catching crappie. So, Matthew, if we can impose upon you, can you tell us a little bit about rods and reels and what are some of the more successful techniques that maybe you employ to be successful? Okay, so here in the Midwest where we're fishing, you know, primarily we're fishing dirtier water lakes. And uh, for most of the dirtier water lakes, we use long rods. And I'm, I'm talking, you know, upwards of 14, 15, 16-foot rods. Because with really? this live imaging, this forward-facing sonar we're using, you know, we're going out and single, like going after single individual fish swimming in open water, and we're trying to present that bait to them out over, you know, just like everybody talks about crappie have eyes on top of their head, they're always looking up. You know, you're trying to get that bait over the top of them and push it in front of them and hold it there for them to be able to come up and eat it. Um, there's some places where you cast to them, and you can, you do it individually with the, the live imaging. But, um, you know, they still go to Florida, and I've gotten my teeth kicked in in Florida the, the one time I went down there. Um, they still spider rig and uh, pull whole uh, jigs behind the boat, you know, uh, long line jigs behind the boat at, you know, let's say 0.5 to 1.5 mile an hour and cover water that way. And there's there's still techniques like that that are um, necessary in certain places. Um, but a lot of the fishing around me and where we usually hit with the tournaments is, is primarily a long rod. And uh, I'd say that wins 90% of the tournaments. But... Um, as far as like right now, uh, you know, a super popular technique is since they're on the bank is just a cork, a cork and a jig a foot deep and, and parallel on the banks and, and covering them that away and catching them when they're up there spawning. Um, what are you using for a, a bait? What are you using for a lure on that, on those? It just depends, you know. I mean, I'm used, I use a lot of stuff that's called Euro Tackle and they're a little swim bait. And then, I mean, I, I use a lot of little Bobby Garland plastics. The uh, Baby Shad, I'd say the Stinger Shad, the Baby Shad is, like, probably the best all-around bait from the east to the west coast. You know, you can catch crappie on a two-inch Baby Shad from Bobby Garland anywhere in the country. Um, primarily with the crappie is changing the profile. You know, certain, some of the muddier water, you know, small, tiny little baits work. Um a popular thing now is hair jigs. You know, they kind of, I heard him, um, one of you guys say something about a marabou jig earlier. And, uh, yep. you know, that was a popular thing back in the 80s and 90s. And then I think, you know, the plastics kind of took over. And, and some of the flashy colors obviously have caught the fishermen, you know. And uh, now with the live imaging, we're going out and pressuring so many fish that the plastic is, sometimes can spook them because it, uh, instead of absorbing water, it disperses the water and creates vibration. And, and there's times that uh, I think that 
plastics work better, but a lot of these fish anymore are pressured in those hair jigs. Something real natural absorbs the water. It's not, you know, doesn't send out a ton of vibrations, and you're putting it right on their nose. I think it's a little more subtle, and, a, you know, that would be that would be what I'd consider finesse fishing for crappie, you know. Well, you so know, a few techniques. Go ahead. I was going to say Bobby Garland was a good friend of mine <laughs> and he made a lot of different baits but a lot of people don't know what what bait you're talking about or what it looks like so why don't you explain what's up what what bait from bobby garland are you using what does it look like he's known for his tubes you know and his in his twin tail jigs and and that's what Bar mm -hmm. the, the the garland of, of yes yesteryear made i'm still fishing them too but what are you talking about what kind of a bait are you are you fishing it's a, it's a little shad-styled bait. It's like a little minnow, basically. You know, it's got a single tail. It's not very wide. Um, it doesn't have a paddle tail on the end of it or anything. It's just a straight-tailed bait, and it's just a, it just looks like a little minnow. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, they, you know, and then they also, like a lot of guys, will uh, long line Bobby Garland's old hypergrubs and their strollers, which are like a curly tail, and uh, those just put off a, a vibration and action in the water and the fish can feel it and they can come and find it, you know, and there's times that just a, like a baby shad works whenever you're long lining as well. Um, but like, see my form of long lining back on, let's say Stockton Lake, it's a clear water lake and pre-spawn, they get a little temperamental. They're kind of hard to get to eat from a, um, being hungry, you know, from feeding They're you're relying on a reaction out of them and we would troll, Flicker shads, crankbaits, bandits, little things like that, stuff that runs 6 to 14 foot deep. And, uh, you know, those fish, just you just get a pure reaction out of them. So there's several techniques, things that work at different times of the year. But uh, primarily, like I said, across the country, a little Bobby Garland baby shad will catch crappie anywhere. Matt, we only have winter a time. Matt, uh, hey guys, we only have a couple of minutes left in this. And, Matt, I want to congratulate you because – you uh, uh, were brought to my attention on a, a tournament you had fished at uh, Lake Granada where you had a two-day limit of 44.71 in crappie. And I've I, I fished on tournaments, staying you have too windy. You've also, like on Lake Mead, where you haven't had a two-day limit like that on bass. So congratulations <laughs> on that limit. That that had to have been pretty pretty big achievement. Yeah, that was that's something pretty special to me, especially to do it with my dad. Um, you know, catching we had I think a three nineteen average, and Holy uh, mackerel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, you know that's that's huge crappie, and I actually had plans yeah, to is. go to Clear Lake because Clear Lake has giant black crappie in it. Um, yes, it but those were all you know white crappie. I'm sure there's I'm, I think there's a few hybrid crappie weighed in that were in the you know. 360, 370 range, but um, you know the big fish of that tournament was four and a quarter. Holy, holy! Wow. Right, <laughs> Matt. Which our is, our time yeah. has just about come to an end over here. But if people want to find out more about what you're doing, maybe ask you a question about crappie fishing that you can share, and find out some about some of the sponsors and products that you use to make you a successful crappie fisherman. How's the best way to go about doing that? Well, if you want, you can follow me on um, Facebook, and it's uh, Matt Rogers. It's Matthew Rogers Angling. Um, 
and I put a lot of stuff on there. I'm getting better about it, but I put a lot of stuff that's like I feel informational, stuff that really helps. And uh, feel free, anybody out there, to message me, you know, ask me anything you want. I'm I'm open book on it, and uh, I'll help people out however I can, especially to grow, that, this, the, grow tournament crappie fishing. You also said you're a guide, and tell us what area do you guide out of, and if people want to get a hold of you as a guide service, how do they go about doing it? They can message me on, on the uh, Facebook site. And uh, I primarily fish on Truman Lake and uh, out of Bucksaw Marina is where usually where we launch. And uh, they have quite the accommodations. They have rooms and rooms there, the marina. And uh, it's a pretty nice facility, about the best one on the lake. And, uh, you know, Truman Lake is a destinational lake. It's uh, got, you can catch some big crappie there. And you can catch a lot of fish there. All right, Matthew Rogers, thanks for sharing some time with us on crappie fishing. Excited for you, excited for the, the tour. And and you know what? We're going to just have to have you back because we didn't even scratch the surface, I think, of some of the things we need to know about. No but kidding. <laughs> thanks a lot for being with us and giving up the time. And a happy birthday to your granddad. I'm, I'm happy that uh, you could spend some time with us, take it away from them. You go back and enjoy their time, and we look forward to speaking to you again, sir. Yes, sir, and I appreciate the opportunity very much and, uh, you know, helping a young guy like me get out there and grow and uh, promote, and uh, I appreciate everything, and I look forward to coming on again. All right. Matthew Rogers, professional crappie angler. Hey, we're going to take a break right now, but coming up next, from Hub SeaWorld Research, Mike Shane is with us. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Pat McDonald here to tell you that the Hall Shows are back. Bart Hall Shows February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds and March 29th through April 2nd at the Long Beach Convention Center. Share the passion of outdoor recreation as we celebrate 75 years of Hall Shows family fun. Hi, this is John, and I'd like to invite you to the new Angler's Arsenal location in Lakeside, California. We put together a staff of experts that will help you find the tackle and gear you need at a price you can afford. We carry all the major brands. And if you need custom work done, we can do that for you with both rods and reels. How about servicing your old equipment? No problem. We can do it quickly, easily, at a price you can afford. We also do custom hand-poured plastics through Western Plastics. Design the lure of your dreams and catch the fish that have been getting away. So come and visit us in Lakeside. We're at 12255 Woodside Avenue, or you can visit us at anglersarsenal.com. If you need to call us, we're at 619-466-8355. See you there. There's nothing more peaceful than fishing. Just me, my pole, and some bait. Oh, and my life jacket, of course. I like fish, but I don't want to end up at the bottom of the water with them. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hello, Bill Batson here. I would like to personally invite all of the Rod and Reel listeners to come visit the Batson booth at the Pacific Coast Sport Fishing Festival March 2nd through the 5th at the Orange County Fairgrounds and Event Center. Join me and my team and rod builders from around the world as they demonstrate and share their skills of their trade. If you're a rod builder or you want to be a rod builder or have interest in rod building, you won't want to miss this opportunity to learn more about the rain shadow, blank line, and the ops and forecast components. 
and also have an opportunity to pick up limited edition rain shadow rod blanks available only at the show at Island Fishing Tackle. Sam and his team do a great job. For you fishermen, Team Rain Shadow staffers will be present to show you why the world's best components should be included on your next fishing rod. While in attendance, enter Batson's free raffle to win one of 12 custom rods to be given away during the show, and probably more than that. So come join the Batson team, March 2nd through the 5th at the Orange County Fairgrounds. Come by and see us at our booth. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Are you looking for a quality fishing experience out of Cobblestone Lucas for you, your family, and friends, but are a little set back with what charter company to choose? We urge you to use American and family-owned Lands End Charters. Lands End Charters offers the passengers affordable and all-inclusive services on a variety of vessels and trips. Fish with the latest of fishing gear while experiencing the hospitality of a long-time-owned family business. Go to LensAndCharters.com to see all of their vessels and amenities available. Call Cobble Greg or Jenny at 800-281-5778 when you're ready for an action-packed Cabo fishing experience. Hey everybody, this is a message for our listeners from a new Baja Magic Lodge at Cedros Island. Cedros Outdoor Adventures wants to make your dream of fish at Cedros Island a reality. Want to go after giant calicos or yellowtail with the best Cedros Island fishing organization, but you just don't know who to contact? Then give Cedros Outdoor Adventures a call at 619-793-5419, or even better yet, log on to their informative website at cedrosoutdooradventures.com. There you can visit their trip calendar and schedule a trip that's convenient for you. Once again, the phone number is 619-793-5419, or their website of cedrosoutdooradventures.com. Hi, I'm Pat McDonald here to tell you that the Hall Shows are back. Bart Hall Shows February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds and March 29th through April 2nd at the Long Beach Convention Center. Share the passion of outdoor recreation as we celebrate 75 years of Hall Shows family fun. Dave Vandenberg, Wendy Toshihara, and I, we want to welcome you back to the second hour of Ron Real Radio. Well, you know, this is definitely nothing less than a success story for sure. Over the years, we tried to document and follow what was happening with Hub Sea World Research and the restoration project that they had for white sea bass. And it always seemed like the results that were coming from their efforts just just didn't make any sense, just didn't seem to, to add up. Now we find that there is maybe a little light at the end of that tunnel with some new research that has come out that has really shown us the effect that Hub Sea World and the restoration project has had on the white sea bass population. And to tell us more about that, guest that we've had on several times always happy to talk about this project is mike shane from hub sea world mike welcome to the radio show sir thank you john can you hear me okay yeah i could hear you great so can wendy so can stan so it's it's great to have you aboard sir great enough thank you for having me and not giving us the opportunity to uh, update you with uh research well let's just talk a little bit about what got you to this point? You know, uh, tell us just real quickly a little bit about Hub Sea World and the White Sea Bass Restoration Project and 
how you go about releasing and the number of fish up to this point in time you think that you put in and added to the general population? Yeah. So Hubs SeaWorld Research Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We were started uh, by the founding fathers who were building SeaWorld in the early 60s, and they actually started our organization a year before they opened the park with the mission to return to the sea some measure of the benefits derived from it. So we're actually a year older than, than SeaWorld. And we, you know, specialize and, and focus our science in kind of five core areas, uh, animal behavior, ocean health, um, animal ecology or movements, uh, uh, sustainable seafoods, and education. So uh, those programs, you know, are, are, are dear to us and, and focus a lot of our ocean research on that over the almost 60 years now that we've been uh, in, in business. So the Sustainable Seafood Program is the one that I'm involved with and the one that I'm here to talk about today. And within that program is the White Sea Bass Enhancement Program. And that program got started in the early 1980s with legislation written by the state of California and created uh, in a stamp that when you fish in Southern California in the ocean, south of Port Arguello, then there's an ocean enhancement stamp. And that money then goes to the department and it's, it's made to help support uh, uh, and look at the potential of using aquaculture to enhance uh, fish species. And when, they, when this came about in the early 1980s, uh, they got together and decided, well, you know, white sea bass is going to be one of them. And they also did California halibut back then. So over this 35-some-odd uh, years now, you know, we've been primarily focused on white sea bass. We've kind of gone back and forth a couple of times with halibut hopefully trying to get back to do California halibut. Um, they seem to be uh, a population, at least in Southern California, that's desperate need of, of some enhancement as work as well. So anyways, our program with the white sea bass in particular, um, we've released since 1986 was our first release. So we've been the sole contractors to the department to operate this program. And during this time period, we've released just over two and a half million fish into the ocean throughout Southern California. A large part of this program, how it operates, and which is unique to stock replenishment, not only in this country, but worldwide, is, is that it, it employs a, a large volunteer base. And most of these volunteers uh, that are up and down the coastline here in Southern California are, are fishermen themselves. So not only have they paid to fish through the ocean enhancement stamp, They've also now uh, built these pens, again, with more money and are taking care of fish. So they, we provide fish to all these grow-out sites that, uh, from the hatchery after about four months in age, when we culture them at the hatchery, uh, we tag those fish with a coated wire tag. That is a small stainless steel piece of, of wire that goes into their cheek muscle. Every fish that we uh, send out the door to these grow-out sites, um, that Piece, a little piece of wire is, is a surgical-grade stainless steel that uh, is, looks like a piece of mechanical pencil. Anyways, it was uh, designed and created for the salmon industry, and it's been used by numerous uh, organizations and people worldwide you know, since, since that uh, design was originally, again, for, for salmon. So we've been tagging all the fish since 1990 with all that. Prior to using uh, coder wire tags, we used tetracycline to help uh, in their feed would, that would kind of lay down a mark or a fluorescent mark that you would have to see when you 
took some of their bones or their vertebra and you put it under a black light and fluoresce. Unfortunately, that didn't really tell you where the fish came from. It just identified it as a hatchery fish. So the coat of wire tags, uh, again, is a technology that we've been using to uh, be, uh, you know, as part of our, to be uh, responsible for what we're doing out there. I mean, to answer questions with regards to where fish are going, how they're surviving, and uh, how what the success of this program has been. So, you know, over the years, we go out and we try to recover uh, our hatchery fish. One of my primary responsibilities has been to, uh, in the past, is to uh, go out there every day trying to recover our, our fish. And we deploy small mesh nets in the coastal waters and in abatements looking to try to recover our hatchery fish on a, on a shorter time scale so that we can assess uh, you know, when these fish are released by the grow-out sites, you know, can we, we can assess them quicker in the sense of, uh, you know, when they go out the door from the grow-out sites, they're only 8 to 10 inches. So it does take them a couple more years to reach the 28-inch size uh, before fishermen can keep them. So uh, we've, we've done uh, a lot of sampling uh, up and down the coastline of, of California with that method. And then we also go to the commercial and recreational fishermen and ask them for them, once they get a legal-sized fish, to cut the heads off and save us, uh, save the head for us, and then we'll look look for that tag in that head and, and try to uh, identify where that fish came from. And and we also go to the commercial markets and scan fish that are landed by the commercial fishermen as well. And what we've seen from that is, is um, you know, we've gotten fish back 20 years later um, that have run around. We've caught this fish, you know, that from this hatchery program as far out as 100 miles offshore off the Cortez and Tanner Banks. We've also caught them up the coastline as far north as, as Monterey, Santa Cruz area. So we know that these fish can move around quite a bit. I mean, it's a big pond out there, the Pacific Ocean, and, and these fish uh, roam and go uh, up and down the coastline wherever they want to go. They're not uh, like a salmon. Most people are familiar with where they have to come back to the same stream and same area to spawn. So as a fishery scientist, if you want to assess the uh, salmon uh, fishery, all you do is just wait at the stream and kind of sample fish as they come back to you, and you kind of can see who's tagged and who's not. Unfortunately, with sea bass, you kind of have to chase them around a little bit to uh, hopefully get some of your tagged fish back because they uh, tend to boogie up and down the coastline soon after they're let go from this program. So, again, scanning and going to these markets and, and doing the fishery side of thing, you know, we, we for years have seen, you know, about one in every three to 400 heads that we come across has a tag in it. And so um, from that, you know, we're kind of, you know, we, we did a, a paper that we published back in 2010, so just over 10, 11 years ago now, that we modeled working with some experts in, in the field, um, modeled kind of our, our catches of, of our hatchery fish, uh, before they reach uh, or what we call recruit into the fishery, so less than 28 inches because we've been sampling ourselves for all this time. And so, we, again, we modeled that data looking at uh, when we release fish and what their expected survivorship is. And that study was really, you know, can, uh, hinged on the tag recaptures coming back. And we do get quite a bit of tag recaptures back from sublegally um, you know, that we were able to use in that study. Unfortunately, not a lot have been coming back on the adult side, uh, just a couple hundred versus a couple thousand on the sublegal side. But again, those are fish that are only out there for a couple of years uh, and they need to continue to grow to obviously get into the fishery. So 
you know, that modeling that we did in that paper that we published showed through the tag recaptures that, you know, and we've adapted the program based on that paper that in all seasons, fish released uh, from grow-out pens versus those released directly from the hatchery have higher survivorship. So we, we're trying now to get all the fish into the grow-out pens. And we also learned from that study that fish released in the winter months don't have as high a survivorship as the other seasons. So we, we subsequently, again, to get more fish out there, hopefully more surviving and recruiting the fisheries, are not releasing fish during the winter months, and those are December, January, and February. So the coda wire tags do provide, you know, pertinent information, help us answer questions and know where fish come from. The challenge then, and the study that we just did, and we're here to talk about, or at least update you on this genetic study, so um, came out, uh, or at least uh, in, in, uh, uh, in draft form, we've been working with the folks in South Carolina now for since 2018. Uh, unfortunately, COVID kind of threw a little wrench into it and postponed the study. But we provided samples to them from all our broodstock that we've had in captivity at the hatchery since 1995. That's when the hatchery in Carlsbad was opened, and we built that facility for the purpose of the White Sea Bass Enhancement Program. So we had fin clips from and from all our, our fish that we've had ever had in captivity. And so we sent those to the folks in South Carolina so they could what's called genotype, or at least identify the parents in, in our tanks. And then we, uh, again, we've caught thousands and thousands of sea bass over the years. And so we provided a data set where they randomly picked out uh, samples of otoliths. So we didn't have fin tissues, but we had otoliths. These are the bones in the heads that the fishmen like to keep, and they're important for us as scientists for various reasons. And here's another reason, which is, you know, genetics. They could actually, and they perfected the technique where they could take an ear bone and drop it in their magical sauce and pull out genetic uh, information off of an otolith. Um, so anyway, so they took a, a random subsample. Of that subsample of about, they were able to identify about 700 fish um, and get, get genetics off them. Sometimes the odalis were a little too clean because we rinse them off a little bit and, and they couldn't, after we pull them off the head of the fish, so they weren't able to get genetics off of them. But 700 of them they were, and, and that was a, uh, in that roughly 700 fish that were from here, from, from kind of Newport south to the Mexican border here, um, of those fish, we knew that about 7% of those fish had coated wire tags in them. So... You know, they and they definitely identified those seven percent in the parents for those seven percent. But what they found, and this is what was really significant, that there was a lot more than just seven percent of those fish that were that came from the hatchery or had hatchery parents. Turns out, it's about forty-six percent of those wow. fish came from the hatchery yeah. and had hatchery parents. You so, guys must have. You guys must have been. Uh, Dancing the jig when you heard that, in comparison to some of the other uh, data that you had gotten in the past. Correct. I mean, you know, as, as scientists, you know, it, it's great to you know come up. You know, you don't have a lot of these aha type of moments typically, but when they do happen, I mean, they're they're uh, amazing and, and pretty cool, and they always lead to more questions. You know, obviously with the genetics and forty six percent of these fish. Sub elite, they were sub-adult fish, so they weren't legal-sized fish. They were fish that were haven't quite recruited to the fishery yet. But of those 46%, what happened to their tags? I mean, we 
we try to tag them. And so did those tags, you know, fall out? Did they migrate or move somewhere else by chance into the fish? Or have they lost their ability to be detected? That is their magnetism uh, on the tag, because that's usually how they're detected by this special wand. So we've done tag retention studies a few years ago, long-term ones, trying to see, well, how long do these tags stay in? The fact that, we, hey, we've got fish back that have been out there for 20 years, but who knows if all the fish hold their tags for 20 years. But we did a long-term retention study in Newport Bay up for up to two years, and we had 100% retention of fish in those, 100% uh, retention of tags in those fish. So um, we're just trying to understand now, uh, again, with this aha moment that we have, what, what's going on. So now our next question is to try to understand hey, this is great, we're going to continue to, you know, get this work out the door, get it published, um, get it get it cleaned up. And, then again, these are just preliminary. It's a graduate student in South Carolina that's finishing up, and she's doing some additional uh, genetic analysis of, 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 the, of all the data that we've provided to them to understand uh, the, even the wild population genetics and, and maybe the, any uh, contribution or uh, genetics uh, that our fish are, are contributing to that. But, uh, you know, we're going to try to go out and try to answer the kind of the next questions and try to see if we can find within the adult population or the fishery, um, what do we see the same story out there? Do we see a high number of fish that have hatchery parents? And so we're going to be trying to answer that question this summer and uh, by collecting more heads from the fishermen, saving those heads sending the genetic material to South Carolina, and hopefully when they come back and say, okay, well, here's the number of fish that we found have hatchery parents based on genetics, and if we didn't scan and see a tag in there, then we'll, we'll still have the heads, and then we'll look at them under a, under, sorry, through x-rays and see if we can identify and see if the tag is still there. These tags actually stand out, even though they're such a small piece of metal, we've x-rayed uh, heads before with the tag in it, and you can clearly see the tag in the and through the X-ray. Just it, it turn, has a nice return on it, so you can actually see it. So we'll we'll try to say, hey, can you can you, you know, and then if the tag's there, let's try to dissect it out and see if it's lost its magnetism or what's going on and why we couldn't detect it. And if it's not there, the X-rays will just say, hey, yeah, no, there wasn't a tag there, and so you didn't fail to not detect it. It's just the tag disappeared and or. You know, so what happened to it? Um, how did how did how did it lose it? And you know, I've talked Mike, to the manufacturer. Go ahead. How how is the best way? Because a lot of a lot of fishermen, a lot of people hearing this may not be aware of you collecting the heads of the white sea bass. And now we're driving home how important that the, you get this resource. How is the best way to get the heads of our catch to you, especially if I'm a private boater? So the, the best way, again, it's mostly this word of mouth, and, and we try to just do this radio show and stickers that we have and things, is to ask the fishermen to cut the heads off and, and deposit them in the freezers that are up and down the coastline at most of the sport fishing landings. And then we go over there and, and bring those heads back to San Diego where we can then look at them. We're going to try to focus and target, you know, there are some key landings, obviously, that catch the majority of the sea bass here in Southern California. So we're going to be trying to focus on some of those landings and, and get them re-engaged again because, you know, years ago we had had uh, 
awards and money prizes for the fishermen to save the heads. And when I talk about the fishermen, these were on the, the sport fishing boats. So, you know, we gave away $4,000 a year, $2,000 uh, basically uh, uh, for the boat that collected the most number of heads for us. And then another 2000 for the boats that turned in the most number of tags or got the most, most tagged fish. And so that seemed to stimulate, uh, again, a, a good response. And for some of these landings, when I mean, we were seeing over 50%, 75%, 90% of the fish that they were catching, they were saving their heads for. So it was a good incentive for them, uh, at least on the, on the sport boats, but for the recreational fishermen, you know, if we get them to continue saving, saving their heads. And, you know, we haven't figured out any, any way to sort of um, acknowledge, acknowledge them or, or recognize them. We do get in touch with them and, and say, Hey, if you get a tagged fish, we definitely are, are back in touch with them and letting them know that we've got a tagged fish. This will be interesting. And it's going to be a kind of a, a sit and wait because we're going to have to obviously um, get the fish, get the material, genetic material, and then send all those back to South Carolina, have them look through them and, and, and then tell us, you know, what we, what we see. And, and then at that point, we'll have to, uh, you know, this will be months later getting back to the fishermen to say, Hey, guess what? We found a, a, a genetic mark. Your fish actually had a hatchery came from the hatchery. So. Oh, that's kind well, of, no, I got no. a question on, yeah. on how far South can, do we have uh, any fish caught? Do we know how far down south they've gone and, and any record on that? I mean, we got Santa Barbara Islands down, but how far south have they gone? Yeah, so that's a good question. So we've scanned, I've scanned thousands and thousands of sea bass heads. I can't tell you how many from Mexico over the years. And most of these have come up to Chesapeake on, you know, tractor trailer, truck trailers coming up. And uh, and, uh, and never once have we detected a coat of wire tag. Well, I, I had saved some genetic tissue from uh, sea bass, and this was for other graduate students doing genetics work in, in the past. And so we had some 50 samples from Mexico, and those were caught down off Punta Abrejo. So that's south of Guerrero Negro. And, and so we sent South Carolina, I didn't mention that, but we sent them 50, those 50 samples, and those were all adult fish from Mexico. And the big surprise was is they found of those fish, they were able to genotype about 43 of them, uh, get their genetics. But of those 43, they found out that 30% of those fish, 30% came from the hatchery. So they were hatchery wow. parents. No kidding, all the way down sorry, to Aubrey Oaks? Right. Yes, all the way down there. And so that's another eye-opener. So 30% of just a small sample size is huge. And all the way down to Mexico, where we've never, never, never got a tagged fish back with a coated wire tag in it. Mike, we only have about three minutes left here. With the information that you've received on really the success of this project, what does that mean for the future? Does it mean that the project can grow? Does it mean that you'll be able to sustain what you're doing now and keep it going? What does the future lie in store for this yeah. project based on what we know now? Well, the future certainly looks uh, bright, so bright they got to wear shades. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, um, you know, it, it reinvigorates the panel, the ORHAP committee, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, and the science, newest science committee. That actually, the uh, one of the new committees actually meets this week, and some of these geneticists that were involved in the study are on the science panel. So there'll be discussion among them, helping to guide us. So, I mean, it's certainly, I mean. 
oh, it's going to open, it opens up a whole new game now with regards to what science, what research we're going to do. Um, and so hopefully, you know, this, this will change and, and, you know, we, we can keep going in the program, but maybe we need to, I mean, we definitely need funding has always been short, short with this program. We've been receiving less and less funds really from the department to keep it going. So we've had to, you know, cut back on how many fish we release and what we can do. And so this will definitely be a game changer. I mean, hopefully we can get some new funding because it's really been a challenge to keep staff and keep everyone supported and keep this program growing. So um, we'll, we will see, I mean, in the coming months, it's going to be with, as this comes out and we have more discussions, it, it's definitely going to change some things and, and open some people's eyes. And again, like I say, I think it's reinvigorated, reinvigorates uh, us and, and everyone else that's involved with this program. Mike, where can we go to, to get more information about what's happening with the program? And if there are people that are, wanting to contribute to help support what you're doing, how's the best way to do it? So the best way to uh, go is go to our website for our organization, which is hswri.org. That's Hub Serial Research Institute, hswri.org. And then from there, you can see all our programs that we do. You can go to Sustainable Fisheries link that's under there and uh, see the see what's going on with the program and learn a little bit more about our program, including you know locations, drop off head locations uh, up and down the coastline. There should be a list there um, that has all that information. So we really appreciate fishermen. Hopefully, you know we're going to try to get you know at least a thousand head this summer, which shouldn't be a a, a big challenge, uh, but that's kind of our our goal. And we'll see the science advisory committee. I say meets this week, and we'll see what they have to say. But Please check out our website. You know, we'll try to keep it up, keep everyone updated. Um, do there, and 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 certainly by by making these presentations, coming on your show, and going to other clubs, we'll certainly continue, we'll continue to get the word out on the progress that we're making. Right, Mike. That's exciting information. Congratulate you knew you knew that they were out there. You were just wondering what the heck was happening with the data that just didn't prove it, and now it seems like you're being exonerated and this is probably even more successful than you probably could imagine. And I, 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 congratulations on that. And we'll stay in contact with you and, and hopefully down the road, we'll have, get more information to find out what's happening with this project. Yes. Great. Great. Thank you for the opportunity, John, and coming out there and, and uh, educate your listeners. Oh, educated us. Outstanding. For sure, Outstanding. Yeah. That's all I got to say. Mike Shane from Hub Sea World Project on uh, the the, uh, the White Sea Bass Project. Man, that is such great news. Hi, I'm Pat McDonald here to tell you that the Hall Shows are back. Bart Hall Shows February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds and March 29th through April 2nd at the Long Beach Convention Center. Share the passion of outdoor recreation as we celebrate 75 years of Hall Shows family fun. Hi. This is John, and I'd like to invite you to the new Angler's Arsenal location in Lakeside, California. We put together a staff of experts that'll help you find the tackle and gear you need at a price you can afford. We carry all the major brands, and if you need custom work done, we can do that for you with both rods and reels. How about servicing your old equipment? No problem. We can do it quickly, easily, at a price you can afford. We also do custom hand-poured plastics through Western Plastics. Design the lure of your dreams 
and catch the fish that have been getting away. So come and visit us in Lakeside. We're at 12255 Woodside Avenue. Or you can visit us at anglersarsenal.com. If you need to call us, we're at 619-466-8355. See you there. It's hot. Time to get to that lake, river, or beach you love. Just remember, COVID is still with us, so plan ahead. Follow local public health guidelines and make sure everyone wears a life jacket. Life jackets save lives. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hello, Bill Batson here. I would like to personally invite all of the Rod and Reel listeners to come visit the Batson booth at the Pacific Coast Sport Fishing Festival March 2nd through the 5th at the Orange County Fairgrounds and Event Center. Join me and my team and rod builders from around the world as they demonstrate and share their skills of their trade. If you're a rod builder or you want to be a rod builder or have interest in rod building, you won't want to miss this opportunity to learn more about the rain shadow, blank line, and the ops and forecast components. And also have an opportunity to pick up limited edition rain shadow rod blanks available only at the show at Island Fishing Tackle. Sam and his team do a great job. For you fishermen, Team Rain Shadow staffers will be present to show you why the world's best components should be included on your next fishing rod. While in attendance, enter Batson's free raffle to win one of 12 custom rods to be given away during the show, and probably more than that. So come join the Batson team March 2nd through the 5th at the Orange County Fairgrounds. Come by and see us at our booth. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Have you dreamed of experiencing the world class in and offshore fishing off the exotic tropical Pacific coast of mainland Mexico? Why not fish the sailfish capital of the world, Manzanillo, Mexico, with the folks you know and trust, Cedros Outdoor Adventures. In Manzanillo, you can find roosterfish, sailfish, marlin, tuna, dorado, and more, all within 20 miles of the shore. Our friends at Cedros Outdoor Adventures are offering an all-inclusive travel package to Manzanillo that makes your winter fishing dreams a reality for a special price of $21.95. Cedros Outdoor Adventures is a name you learn to trust for safety and value, but these trips are available for a limited time only, starting this fall through March 2021. Learn further trip details and make your reservation at cedrosoutdooradventures.com or call at 619-793-5419. Hi, I'm Pat McDonald and I've got some great news. The Hall family shows are back. The Bart Hall Show February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds is San Diego's biggest fishing show, its biggest boat show, its biggest outdoor recreation event in four years. Acres of fishing tackle, boats, fishing, and hunting travel and outdoor adventure. Come celebrate 75 years of Hall shows with a full day of family fun. The Bard Hall Show, February 16th to the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. And we want to welcome you back to Ron Real Radio. Stan Vandenberg's with us tonight. In studio guest is... Recreational tuna angler extraordinaire, Rob Tressler. Uh, if you're wondering what's happened to Wendy, Wendy is on the American Angler right now, and she is sending pictures and comments and everything else like that. So it's it's almost like she is with us, but she is having a great time on the American Angler. They're into uh, yellowtail, wahoo. I haven't seen a lot of tuna yet, but uh, uh, they are just having a great time and i think we will most likely hear about it next week well 
We got Rob Tressler with us and Stan, obviously. Uh, Rob, I want to talk to you about you just came back this past weekend from pretty successful tuna trip. We're talking about the first week of uh, December. Tell me wow. about your trip, how the bite was, and how it seems to be changing from what you've seen in the past few months. Yeah, it went. Um, none of the boats could get off the docks at San Diego. I think it wasn't a shortage of fish; it was a shortage of, of fishermen. Um, and uh, and some of the boats, as Danny mentioned, are going into repair now. So that's it's that time of year. But we went up. I went up and got on the Freedom out of Twenty Second Street, and I've never been up there, never been on to that landing or been on that boat, and uh, was pleasantly surprised. It's a a really nice boat. It's got the same. Uh, plan and layout as a grande out of h&m actually it's well maintained they had a good crew and that bite on the the better grade bluefin that we'd had the last couple of weeks at the 381 near the east end of uh, san clemente has has gone away uh, those fisher have moved and they haven't really been able to relocate them we were actually talking to other sport boats in the area while we were up there this weekend and they said they saw no signs of them uh, there wasn't a night bite anymore either. We'd been having a pretty good night bite, and that had faded as well. In fact, it was for us the same thing. We got to the tanner. We anchored on the high spot. Um, a lot of squid around, and water's cold. It's that time of year. But, I mean, my God, I've been on the tanner in winter's past, and I've never seen squid like we saw. It's like driving through an ocean of the darn things. It was pretty wild. There's National Geographic stuff. We got there. We set the pick, dropped the anchor, and uh, just... Um, Started slowly, waited for daybreak. Some guys fished at night. I put out a little bit and pumped a couple squid and some sardine for nothing. Nobody got bit. And when the sun came up, um, he started marking some fish swimming through. And uh, we started uh, throwing some chum. We had a couple boils off the back. And we went into a bite that lasted about three hours. And we put, uh, I think, 47 or 48 on the boat. Nothing big. That uh, that 80 to 200 pound stuff wasn't around. These were all 20 to 30 pound bluefin, but people were having a great time. It was a really mellow group of anglers, and pretty much all of them kind of knew what to do. So we were catching them on slider rigs with squid. We were catching them on sinker bait rigs with sardines, and we were catching them on uh, fly line baits with sardines as well because they were up high. They were anywhere from 80 to 200 feet underneath the boat we were only in like 340 feet of water at the time uh, on the high spot there were boats all around us and we could hear them whooping and hollering so they were getting hooked up as well we ended the trip with uh, i think 50 or 51 bluefin for 38 anglers we should have limited out um i hooked uh, far too many that didn't get on the boat but i had a lot of fun <laughs> and um we had a break uh, during the midday. It slowed down. The bite slowed. So he pulled the pick, and we went and hit some hard spots he had in 300 feet of water for rockfish and caught some uh, really nice lingcod up to 20 pounds and uh, some really wow. nice reds and, um, and, uh, and chuckleheads that were like, you know, in the four to six pound range. Only caught one cow cod, which was released, and it was a small one, maybe a 15 pounder. But uh, people had a great time, and we hit a, a deep spot, and then we hit a high spot, and we got swarmed by Boccaccio and whitefish. So by that time, it was late afternoon. We went back over to our spot, but it was already getting dark, and the bite had pretty much died off. Uh, we did get into a school of gigantic bonita. I mean, these things were like 13 to 15 pounds. We thought they were blue when we got hit. We thought, oh, yeah, these are bluefin. And then 
but they're they're kind of funny. But boy, they sure are pulling hard. They got to be bluefin. Got them up, and they were the biggest bonita I think I've ever seen. These some of these were like 15 pound fish. They were just huge, and um, that was it for the night. And then uh, we drove around looking for uh, a night bite on the deep water jigs, but we didn't find it at all. Um, and that was kind of the the fleet said, yeah, they 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 couldn't locate any of that bigger grade stuff up in that zone anyway. Um, I suspect it may have slid inside more, not outside, or sunk out. We don't know. I was talking to Andrew Viola on the Pacifica two weeks ago, and and he was telling me that some of the commercials he knew that deep drop fish were catching good grade bluefin on their deep drop sets in a thousand feet of water. Mm. So he said it was in the same area, you know, near the basin and stuff like that, and the slide. And it wasn't that the fish weren't there; they just gone deep. And that's obviously you're not going to you're not going to wind up. Uh, you know, it's not realistic for us on a sport boat to fish 1,200 feet deep for uh, bluefin tuna. But uh, you know, that was interesting. He says I he said he suspects that these fish don't always go away per se; they just sink out. Uh, and it makes sense if you think about it biologically. The deep scattering layer is here all the time. And in the daytime and up until night, it stays at 1,200 feet in the daytime. And I could see them swimming around at depth to eat if there isn't a lot of bait. There's rumors of anchovy now moving in closer to the shoreline. And maybe that will pull some tuna into that general area up there. But we'll have to see. We didn't see a lot. Uh, we saw a lot of squid on Tanner Bank and a lot of bait. So I think that bodes well for at least this smaller grade of bluefin hanging around. As long as the weather doesn't knock us sideways and mess things up i think that we're going to have um you know for those that are interested in catching that smaller grade bluefin and maybe getting some really good rock fishing in before the closures and stuff are implanted um now's the time to go we were lucky it was a lake out there sheet glass it was almost too calm uh but uh, the tuna were biting it didn't matter and we had a good group of people and by that what i mean is is it wasn't that we didn't get into tangles we had 38 anglers on the boat and the boat drifts stern first. Uh, uh, I mean, with you know, and on the hook, on the pick, that means everybody was ending up on the stern pretty much. So we had some horrendous tangles when people hooked fish, but everybody remained really calm and chill about it, and were, were very methodical about getting out of tangles or not worrying if their lines had to be cut to to save the fish and uh, regroup and get back in the water. So uh, it was a lot of fun. It's a good boat. Um, Hopefully, uh, you know, some anglers will be able to get together and uh, get one of the boats. I think the Tribute is still running. I'm not sure if the 095 is still running out of San Diego. But there were a couple boats that were still on the books as being available. I'm not sure how much that's going to hold up. Uh, the Freedom said that they will continue going as long as they've got uh, folks wanting to get on the boat. And, you know, when the tuna dies, they'll just flip over to rock, rock fishing up in that area in that zone as well. Um it remains to be seen what's going to happen with these bigger fish, where they're going to show back up again. There's rumors of them still being around the area, though. They're not gone. Uh, that's for sure, but uh, that's that's all I can say. Rob, let's talk about fly lining uh, because of the fact that, you know, it seems like these fish are one weekend, they're deep, and you can get them on uh, jigs and irons, and then the next weekend, all of a sudden, you're fly lining. And there are... A number of different techniques, and I'm thinking me more like using live bait. And, uh, you know, obviously you can fly line them. That works out. But then there is the sinker rig uh, method, and there are some 
new nuances when it comes to fishing a sinker rig. And you've been having some success where the fishermen, when this started off, they were using 16-ounce sinkers, 12-ounce sinkers. You're actually now going to a lighter sinker. And tell us about the, that setup. Yeah, it's really, really been an eye-opener for me. And at first, I was skeptical. But um, uh, Shane Wright on the Tomahawk was fishing with us. And we were sinker bait fishing, and the fish were marking at 180 to 220 feet. And he was using a 2-ounce sinker, a 2-ounce torpedo rubber-banded on. And he was getting down there to that depth with a 2-ounce. And we had we didn't have much of a drift, but we had some drift. And the rest of us were using 6 and 8 ounces. He was out fishing everybody three to one on the boat because uh, I was tracking it. And I was like, what the heck is going on here, you know, because I fancy myself as being competent at sinker bait fishing. I don't like it. I prefer fly lining or I prefer nighttime jig fishing. But if you got to do it, you got to do it. And um, the only major difference other than the, the sinker being a lot lighter was he put a swivel. So he had um, he'd have a 20-foot top shot of fluorocarbon, not not monofilament, but fluorocarbon. At the end of that 20-foot top shot, he would tie a, a, a small swivel, 80 to 100-pound swivel, and then from that swivel, he would tie another six feet of fluorocarbon to his hook, his circle hook. Right above the swivel, he would rubber band on a two-ounce sinker. He didn't go to the bait well, and he would grab the biggest, hottest sardine he could find and put it on. And I watched. When he dropped it in the water, he'd drop it in somewhat delicately. The sardine would start swimming, and he'd let the sinker go in, too, and that sardine would swim down. And I watched it happen with a two-ounce sinker. He was almost free-spooling that sardine down to 200 feet and bit and bit again. And again, he, caught, he, caught, he hooked 31 fish. He was hooking and handing. He hooked 31 bluefin. And these were... 70 to 110 pound fish it was wide open for him it was not wide open for the rest of the boat and i got to thinking about it and looking at it and i started doing it and it what it boils down to is it's deep water fly lining the sinker is so light that with a healthy sardine there's still he said i can feel one coming after the bait he said my bait's getting excited so he's actually swimming that sardine down there when the sardine stops he just stops the the spool so it doesn't overrun or do anything you know or foul the line there's something about the the setup and the swivel that prevents it from fouling it doesn't foul and if you've got a hot bait you just let it rip and it's almost like you're free spooling a sinker bait rig which we know thou shalt not do that you must drop a sinker bait slow to keep the sardine from coming up and fouling on the main line and with the heavier sinker where that sardine is just tethered it works but they're actively swimming down so i was doing that on this trip we had guys that got five or six bites. I hooked up eight times on this trip, which was more than anybody else on the boat. But I was the only one using that system. Other guys were using the eight-ounce uh, sinker bait rigs. And my baits could swim. And, and you'll have it down at 180, 200 feet, and all of a sudden you'll feel that, that bait go, start going crazy, and you're bit. Or on the retrieve, coming back up, you wind a lot faster because you've got a swivel on it now so you don't have the twist and the roll. You can wind, retrieve a lot faster, and you're bit. So I, I'd suggest it, but the thing about it is you've got to remember is now you're actively fishing the bait like you do a fly line. You're not formally backpedaling completely, although there are times when if the sardine stops and it's kicking to try and come up, that might mean it senses some danger below it at greater depth. I'll stop the reel, and I'll take a couple winds 
to trigger to start swimming again down deep and it'll it'll start pulling line off the spool again and it's kind of neat because you can tell when you're going to get bit because the sardine all of a sudden the, the spool will speed up it's a sinker bait though at 200 feet it'll speed up but because it's a little two ounce sinker he can pull that sinker and this it's a uh, it's very different than your standard sinker bait where you basically got the the sardine you know five or six feet away or four or five three to five feet away pegged with an eight or ten ounce sinker it's just sitting there like a dog on a, a tight leash um, they're when the tuna are biting that doesn't matter that works fine or the drop shot method works fine but if it's a finicky bite and we had a finicky bite these last couple of trips even on the bigger fish i strongly recommend guys try it it's a real eye-opener but once again it's just as critical to pick a hot bait for that style of sinker bait fishing as it is for fly line fishing if you don't do that you get a sloppy bait you're spinning your wheels you got to get a good bait and get it down there you also have got to use unfortunately and you get boxed in here if you've got smaller baits and that's all you've got in the live well you're forced to go to lighter stuff to try and get it down there because once again the whole intent here is to get the bait to swim and pull that setup through the water and they will it's amazing to watch because it's only a two ounce torpedo the one caveat being and it happened again on this trip. It happens every trip. Is and I'm using chrome torpedoes, and I should get away from them. But about one out of every five times I'm bit, the chrome torpedo also gets hit, and I get cut off. Oh man! <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I got to tell you, you know, little things make such a big difference in fishing. It's and huge. A, in a in the bass fishing world, little things make big differences. What Rob's talking about, just the advent of throwing a swivel on there, that one little piece makes a big difference because if you watch a bait when you drop your, your bait into the water, fishing for this bluefin, if you're on, if you don't have a lot of current and you don't have a ton of drift where you can get it down to that fish because that bluefin, if it's in that, that let's say 200 to 150 zone that's that's those fish are eaters yep. the stuff that you, when you got to get it down further than that that's where your flat falls or your knife jigs have to get down there because there's an element of drift no matter what you're on, on any of these boats you know you're going to be moving a little bit but you got to get it down into where the fish are to get a bite the, to use that anywhere from a two to three, even a five or eight ounce sinker, depending on how deep you have to go with that. The difference of putting a swivel on and then tying your your fluorocarbon and your hook onto that so that that swivel keeps your bait from turning over and over and over, especially if you had a, like Rob said, to, to trigger bite move the bait so he turned the handle and moved the bait and then let it go back out and the fish took off again and that that will trigger a lot of times that bigger bluefin or the bluefin to eat even yellowfin doesn't make any difference moving bait makes the fish bite so what he's giving you is all these great tips people of how to make something happen with when nothing is happening and having a, a these the a lot of my guys use rubber bands instead of a swivel, but the, him when he put the swivel on, it changed the, the dynamic of the rig because that 
keeps your bait. Even if it's turning around, it's still swimming at the end of the line, and the hook doesn't come back in and rehook the fish itself. There's a lot of people that, you know, little tips like this that Rob makes because he's out there a lot, and he does understand what he's doing, and he makes adjustments for what he's doing. These things are really good for you to take in and take notice of. Little things make big differences. You know, Stan, I think uh, Rob has given us one of the best tips of the year that we can have. I've got a few questions, though, about what he's doing, but we've got to take a break right now. We're speaking with Rob Tressley, that Stan Vandenberg that you were uh, listening to. We're talking uh, some of the finer techniques that are being used for fishing bluefin tuna right now to help you get bit, but we got to take a commercial break. Rob Tressler, Stan, and myself will be back after these messages. Hi, I'm Pat McDonald, and I've got some great news. The Hall family shows are back. The Bart Hall Show, February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds, is San Diego's biggest fishing show, its biggest boat show, its biggest outdoor recreation event in four years. Acres of fishing tackle, boats, fishing, and hunting travel and outdoor adventure. Come celebrate 75 years of Hall shows with a full day of family fun. The Bart Hall Show, February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. Turner's Outdoorsman, California's number one fishing, hunting, and shooting sports retailer, now has 28 locations. Turner's is your one-stop shop for fishing tackle, hunting gear, and everything for shooting sports. Turner's offers a full selection and unmatched prices on the gear you need. Whether you're planning a fishing trip with the family or chasing giant tuna, Turner's highly skilled staff will make sure you have the gear for your next adventure. Visit turners.com to find a Turner store near you and be sure to join the Turner's Discount Club to get weekly ads and specials right to your inbox. Turner's Outdoorsman, your one-stop shop for all your fishing needs. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel specially heat treated to make them light and extra strong but not brittle. The Gamakatsu sharpening process is the most modern in the world and results in a perfectly conical point that is unequaled in sharpness. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing, drop shot, extra wide gap, worm hooks, finesse wide gap, and a lot more. Gamakatsu has a hook for whatever style of fishing you want to do. Don't waste your time on a cheap hook. Ask for Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. Hi, Roland Martin here. I'd like to tell you a little about Gary Yamamoto and the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company. It all started with an idea, then a dream, and in 1983, the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company was formed. If you know Gary Yamamoto like I do, and I've known him since 1983, you know he has a passionate love for the sport of fishing. That love is only matched by his obsession to design and produce the highest quality soft-acid fishing lures on the market today. Every bait Gary makes is inspected by hand. Today, more than two and a half million packages of bait are shipped worldwide. On behalf of Gary and his staff, he wants to thank his customers for thinking so highly of his products and wishing you the great success of the sport of fishing. Whether you fish for fun or fish the tournament circuits like I do, you'll honor Gary for making Gary Yamamoto custom baits a key part of your fishing experience. Take it from me, Roland Martin. When I'm in need of a go-to bait, my first choice is a Gary Yamamoto custom bait. Are you looking for a quality fishing experience out of Cobble San Lucas for you, your family, and friends? 
but are a little set back with what charter company to choose, we urge you to use American and family-owned Lands and Charters. Lands and Charters offers their passengers affordable and all-inclusive services on a variety of vessels and trips. Fish with the latest of fishing gear while experiencing the hospitality of a long-time-owned family business. Go to LensandCharters.com to see all of their vessels and amenities available. Call Cobble, Greg, or Jenny at 800-281-5778 when you're ready for an action-packed Cabo fishing experience. He's not just my fishing buddy. After 30 years, he's a brother, and I'd sure hate to lose him. His bass boat's got nothing to do with it. So I make sure both of us wear a life jacket. Save the ones you love, even if they don't own a fancy boat. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hi, I'm Pat McDonald here to tell you that the Hall Shows are back. Bart Hall Shows February 16th through the 19th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds and March 29th through April 2nd at the Long Beach Convention Center. Share the passion of outdoor recreation as we celebrate 75 years of Hall Shows family fun. Hey, Stan Vandenberg and I, we want to welcome you back to Raw and Real Radio. Our special guest this hour is recreational tuna angler extraordinaire Rob Tressler. Rob, thanks a lot for spending some time with us. Glad to be here. Hey, you just gave probably one of the, I think, the biggest tips of the year, talking about fishing with this torpedo rig. Now, let me just get into a little more detail and ask you some questions about it. You've got your spectra. What do you line up after you have that raw end of spectra? How do how do you how is that rig set up? Well, I just use a standard, you know, whatever uh, splice you want to use. I use a, an RP myself and i know there's better tony pena and others but i never got a phd in nautology so i can't time that well and i just and i test them and make sure they work at home but at least 20 feet of fluorocarbon is what i run from the spectrum that's just me following what shane does and and I've, that's what i've always run anyway i run a, a longer top shot of floor because i don't run a, a mono um a mono top shot and I think you need the fluoro because you want the sink. Uh, mono has a slight bit of buoyancy, and also it's a per pound, it's a slightly larger diameter than um, fluoro. So I think that it would work with mono, but probably won't work as well. So I'd strongly recommend use fluoro with a good knot from the spectra uh, with at least 20 feet of fluoro, and then to the end of the fluoro, a good knot to tie on a swivel. Now, what pound fluoro? I mean, do you, um, it are varies. You, is that uh, the same thing as your leader or? Do you use one particular pound fluoro and then your leader you can adjust according to the conditions? You can do that, um, and some guys do, um, and I've done it. You know, like I'll have a 60-pound uh, main fluoro, and then I'll, well, you know, I'm going to switch down to 40 or something like that. But I'm being having so much stuff. I'll, I have a 30-pound. I'll usually have not a 30. I'll have a 40, a 60, and an 80 setup using that same system. The critical piece is is as light a weight as you can get away with, and you it's you won't believe that you can get down to 200 feet with a moderate to no with no drift at all. You can get you can easily get to 200 feet with a moderate drift with a two ounce. You can get down to 150 to 180 feet, and if you go to a three or four ounce, it's easy to get down to 200 feet with a moderate drift. Even I mean in a, in a breeze, you know, so it's it's amazing now. What you have to do, though, is if you've got a good breeze on top, because I was fishing this in a good breeze on top, and um, I hooked 13. I only put, you know, I, I hook and handed them. 
we only put eight on the boat, but they were 80 to like 120 pound fish on this setup with uh, 50 and 60 pound this time, uh, a couple trips back. Um, and we've caught them up to 150 pounds this way now. Uh, so it works on big fish. Um, but you want to um, get a longer scope or a longer uh, uh, drift and basically long soak it a little bit, if you will. Now, it'll look like the line is laying up on top, so you think you've got too much scope or too much shallow angle. But when you wind down to the sardine and get that 10 or 15 yards of belly out of the line, you realize you're at a 45 or 50-degree angle, that that sardine has swam it down even in the drift. As long as you're giving it some free, almost verging on free spool, which is, you know, thou shalt not free spool a sinker bait rig because you'll foul the sardine. It's been the mantra, and for the standard sardine sinker bait setup, that's true. The sardine will foul up the line. It doesn't do it if it's swimming and doing what it's supposed to do. You won't foul, or very rarely will you foul. And if you did, it's because you didn't wait. The sardine stopped for whatever reason, was trying to swim up and get away from something. And then at that point, if you're still dropping the sinker, yeah, you get underneath them. So you're actively feeding that sinker with that sardine. You feel it kicking. And it's only probably good up to like, I've used it as heavy as six ounce and gone down to 280 feet and gotten bit that way. Beyond that, you're just pegging the sinker because it's a, it's a half pound now. And sardines just can't pull that around. It, it sounds like the sardine is helping you get down there. Absolutely. They're swimming it down. The now, Absolutely. hooking up. Your sardine, uh, you uh, you butt hooking it, you shoulder hooking it, your nose hooking it. What seems to be working best there? Two flavors. Do never, never butt hook them because remember you're going to get bit on the retrieve. If you butt hook it, even though it's on a swivel, it's going to spin and it doesn't look normal. Um, some guys have nose hooked them and you can wind them back and get bit. I shoulder hook them still because even retrieving, it looks like a rapala. It still swims well with a shoulder hook coming back, and I get bit on the retrieve a lot. And the benefit of the shoulder hook is, you know how sometimes you wind in and you notice how that hook is rolled back into the fish's snout? Yeah. Which means you're not going to hook yeah. the fish. Never happens with shoulder hooking. And hmm. shoulder hooking was an accident. Lori was shoulder hooking for sinker bait fishing, and I said, don't do that. And she... She said, well, I already did it. I'm going to drop it in. She dropped in. She got bit. She forgot, and she did it again. She got bit again. And four fish later, I'm like, okay, something's going on here. <laughs> and they actually swim better on a shoulder hook than they do on a nose hook, frankly. I think about it. If I put a three-pound ring through your nose versus taking that same three-pound ring or maybe a five-pound ring, put it through your nose because it's a little sardine. You've got a, now a, a, a hook through your nose. But a, let's just make it a five-pound ring and say, okay, swim as fast as you can. Versus putting that five-pound ring on your back, where it's basically laying flat on your back. Hydrodynamically, you're going to swim a lot faster and more effectively. We've actually, we should make a video of it. I took, we took a sardine, and we put a nose hook through it, and we put a shoulder hook through it, and put it in live well and just watched. Because I don't believe anything. So I said, well, I want to see this. And sure enough, the, the shoulder hook sardine swam five times better than the nose hook sardine for, sardine for a longer period of time. Both will work. If you know how, if you know how to shoulder hook properly, which means you got to hook them forward, I'd suggest it because you can still retrieve it, and it it that sardine just kicks like a rapala coming back to the boat. And the type of hook and size. Circle are... hook. It very. It depends on the bait and the size fish. I've used as small as uh, fours, uh, number four mutus, 
And I've used, you know, two-watt Mutus for the bigger baits and the bigger fish, you know. Mm. Once again, you're, you get into a Sophie's Choice. It's like, I'm marking jumbos at 180 feet, Rob. Oh, Jesus. All right. Got weak bait. I'm going to fish 80-pound, and I'm going to use a one-odd or a two-odd, you know, heavy, heavy hook. And as light of a weight as I can get away with. It's all about using as light a weight as you can get away with to get the bait down, to make that bait swim. And you're fly lining because you'll feel the bait kicking through the line, and that's how you're feeding the line out almost nearly in a free spool. And we know when we're going to get bit. So, uh oh, he's taking off. Ooh. Something's coming, you know. And that's on a sinker bait, which is normally sinker bait is you're just kind of waiting like a, you're catfishing. And you've got a heavy sinker, the thing is pegged, and you're just waiting for something to come by and grab it, which, don't get me wrong, I've killed a lot of fish that way. Yeah. But this is different. I can't emphasize that you actively have to fish this setup or it doesn't work properly. Now, Rob, this is a, a – oh, go on, Stan. I was going to say this is classic bluefin fishing because classic bluefin fishing has always been how to get the lightest setup to to get the bite, and that's been forever. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. Not, yeah. It, but, but what Rob's giving you is, you know, the, the situations that – because this has been an evolution of fishing. I mean, there there are – 30-year-old people that never caught an albacore, for God's sake, or or more <laughs> right now. <laughs> that, But little things make big differences. So what Rob's telling you is all these little things is if you can get it down to where you are finessing the fish, and that's what this is all about. You know, when you're talking about, you know, putting a, a, a lighter weight torpedo sinker on, even a sliding sinker, you know, the where you can rubber band it above your your swivel, anything, because that's a real effective tool also. But all of these things come into play. Like if if you're not using chapstick, the chapstick trick is the biggest thing to help you tie a knot in the history of fishing. Yeah. If you don't know this, use chapstick on your spectra before you tie your knot. Put about, take your, your thumb on your chapstick, put the line on it and slide it down, make about 18 inches or so of, uh, on your spectra with chapstick and then tie your knot. Your, your knot will not come undone. When you tie your knot and you cinch it up, it will, you'll almost see it go opaque and lacquered and your knot can't come undone with that lacquered finish on that thing. It'll secure your, your knot. Your spectra is abrasive. It's got lots of holes in it, whatever it is. This, the, the waxing compound of your chapstick will smooth that out. It'll tie a knot that won't come undone. That is yep. a first and foremost for your knot tying, especially when you're going to pull hard on these fish over a long period of time. You can't have your connection come undone. But what Rob's yeah. giving you is, this is the finesse method to catch this fish. It's, it's and you can get inclement. You can get inclement weather that can that can compound the situation. Wind, high weather, hard current, all of those things come into play, and it changes it up. But for the basic foundation of what you're hearing here, is finesse fish your bluefin to catch more fish. Now, Rob, you're this is a tech that you're using but you're not scrapping using the rubber band with a heavier sinker too because there's a time and a place for that yeah when it's victory at sea or if there's if he's marking you know it's daytime and the jig bite just not happening at 280 320 feet i'll drop down i've gotten bit you know i'll use an eight ounce i've used a 10 ounce to get down there 
But then I'm using something big. I'm using the biggest bait I can find in the box or even a mackerel. And, you know, and actually I've gotten bit on mackerel and I realized in hindsight mackerel are so big and strong it was probably acting like this finesse setup. It's just if you've got a strong enough bait, it'll overpower that 8 or 10 ounce sinker. Um, but, yeah, there, there's a limit to it. I mean, if it's crazy drift out there, there's a limit to how much you can get away with. But for the majority of the time, even with a 4-ounce and 15 knots of wind, we were getting down there at 150 to 180 feet with a 4-ounce, though. All but right. you got to have a strong bait. You know, uh, Rob, uh, these this information you're giving us on fishing tuna are great. I just want to spend uh, just a couple of minutes, though, before the end of the show here. We're coming to the giving season of Christmas. There's all kinds of gift that we can give, but one of the biggest gifts we can give is the gift of life. And the way of doing it is by giving blood. I know you, your career has been intricately oh, involved with the San Diego Blood Bank and the Blood Bank in general. Uh, tell us a little bit about this time of the year and what's happening at the blood bank. Well, this is a tough time of the year for the blood bank, and it's not anybody's fault. It's just, you know, we're coming into the holiday season. Uh, our donors want to spend time with their families now. They have other priorities, and we understand that. So we tend to see a slump in donations. We also tend to see an uptick in need for blood, though, due to accidents, stress, or other things that are happening in our community. And so we've kind of got this perfect storm of a stressor on the blood bank in terms of need of donors. Um, whole blood, if you donate a unit of whole blood, you can save three lives with that. The red blood cells to save one person's life, the plasma to save another person's life, and the platelets to save a third person's life. Platelet donors, we're really, really hard up for those right now. And the platelet process takes a bit longer than giving uh, a blood unit. But we're critically short on that, and it's one of the primary treatments we use for uh, trauma victims and also for cancer patients. They use a lot of platelets because the platelets get destroyed by the chemotherapy and radiation therapy they're on. And during the holiday season, uh, people don't keep, don't stop getting sick and don't stop having their cancers and don't stop getting their treatments. So we really need uh, people to step up and to come in and donate, please, because it is a slow time of the year for us, but the demand for it, if anything, has increased. So keep that in mind. And when you donate blood, you actually get younger. Uh, it's been shown now in a number of studies that men who donate on a regular basis reduce the risk of heart attack. Uh, women and men that donate on a regular basis reduce the risk of certain forms of cancer. And you also burn 700 calories when you donate a unit of blood. Not saying it's a way to lose weight. You can't come in every week and donate a unit of blood, guys. But what that means for me is is I can go and donate a unit of blood, and now I can go get – and we live in a, the southwest. Uh, you know, We have Tijuana and Mexico right here, so you can get really good, genuine Mexican food here in the San Diego area. So as soon as I donate blood – I realize that, and Taco Bell, here I come. <laughs> you know, uh, you i got to say one thing here. You go know, ahead, for, Stan. We've been, we've been kicking around tuna you know, back and forth and the yellow fin of loof and whatever else. But, Rob, one of these days, I would love to have you come ride with me on one of my long-range trips. Can't guarantee you're going to find them, 
can't guarantee you were going to catch one. But if if I hand if I hang one, I would hand them to you just to let you play with that thing. <laughs> <laughs> it would be an honor. So let's talk about that, Stan. That would be fun. You know, your your trips are normally pretty much booked up ahead of time, Stan. But uh, Rob said, hey. Uh, going out on the Intrepid, going out with Stan and his crew, uh, life does not get any better. I run on the Indy here for the last little bit. I helped Kenny Price for the first five years on the Intrepid, but I've been running the Indy ever since uh, with my group of guys out there and and the crew with Matt and and, uh, Brian as the captain and the the guys that – Excellent crew, excellent boat. I mean, I think it's the best fishing platform next to the queue. The qualifier – this is a qualifier on steroids out there, but we have a great group of guys and, and you'd be welcome to come with us, buddy. It'd be a learning opportunity of a lifetime for me. I'm always up for it. I think I'm comfortable enough to, and I've been intimidated about going on long range boats, you know, from all the meetings do I've that. done. It's just fishing. It's just fishing. If yeah. you can turn the handle and you know how to turn the handle, <laughs> you know, once you, what, and you know what to do when you get a bite, you know, we caught 9,000 marlin this last trip. <laughs> Man, we didn't find any of them. <laughs> you know, and if you're having any anxiety about fishing on long-range trip, check with us next week because Wendy should be back from her trip on the American Angler. And I think we might get a little bit of a taste of what fishing is on a long-range trip with uh, Wendy because... You know they're not fishing all the time because I'm seeing pictures of too much good food going on. <laughs> I'm going to listen in on that one. I want to find out what she was up to. Rob, hey, we can't thank you enough for spending the time to be with us. I I know with the work that you're doing right now, uh, you, your time is very valuable. You, it's even cutting into your fishing time work. Uh, is what What's happening there? Oh, my goodness. Well, we started a new company, and um, I, I, me and my uh, CEO of the San Diego Blood Bank, we've spun a company out of the uh, San Diego Blood Bank called Excelos. We're a, a, bio, we're a, a biotech company that uh, generates uh, immune cells that are then used to treat cancer patients. So, we went from eight employees 12 months ago to 50 employees as of today. So it's been wow. pretty hectic. We've moved into new facilities. We're building new labs. We're downtown. Uh, we still have uh, labs with the San Diego Blood Bank. We're affiliated with them still at a certain level, but we've got a whole new company. All right. Rob Tressler, thanks for sharing the info. Stan, as always, your input is great. Check in next week when we have Wendy back with us from uh, Fishing on the American Angler. And who knows what other list of guests to have. So until then, we want to thank Israel and the AM540 Studios, Ben Harvey, our local producer, and always a member of Big Tuna Bill, Eddie McCune, and Mr. Paul Leader who helped keep us on the air. Good night, everyone. You have a great week. We'll be back next Sunday night on AM540 starting at 5.05 p.m. So Go out there, listen, please, uh, support our, our sponsors, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next Sunday night. Good night, everyone. Ah, you know. But there's a sign upon your door. Uh-huh. Gone fishing. I'm real gone, man. <laughs> you ain't working anymore. Could be. There's your hole out in the sun where you left a row half done. You claim that hoeing uh, ain't no fun. But I can prove it. You ain't got no ambition.